My guest today is a writer and comedian originally from Toronto who is living it up at the moment in London town. Author Monica Heisey has been published in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Vogue, Elle, The Guardian, Glamour, New York Magazine and Vice, among many others. Many of us would know her from her work on beloved television shows like Working Moms and, drumroll please, Schitt's Creek. But she's also written a book, which is why she joins me here today. Monica Heisey, welcome to TGE's Current Read. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my goodness, this book. I ate it up in January. Really good, actually. It's a sardonic, dark comedy that is equal parts hilarious and heart-wrenchingly relatable. Monica, congratulations on what I believe to be a showstopper of a debut. Oh man, thank you so much. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. So uh, according to Mate of Mine, this orange cover, well, we see the orange cover, um, but the eyes and uh, you've got two different covers. You've got a US and and the UK cover all very, and, and they look a lot like you, right? <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> Maggie, the narrator of the book, and I kind of look very similar. Okay, well, we're gonna get we're gonna get stuck into that. But it, it sounds like <laughs> from, um, you know, anecdotally that these books are flying off the shelves. Everybody's seeing them everywhere. I, I brought it into the office today, and some uh, one of my mates in the office who was in the states earlier this year was like, "Oh my goodness." I can't stop seeing this book everywhere I go. You've been a buzz pick for the GMA book club, a fair lady book club pick. I'm sure I'm missing out on a lot more, but how does it feel? Because you've worked on really successful projects, but is there, is there something special about this project being just yours? Yeah, I think there's, at first it was a little intimidating because I am used to being part of a team behind um, a television show or something. So having something that was so personal and particularly because the material is, is really personal to me as well. It's been, um, it's been a little exposing, but I think in a way that ultimately feels really worth it. It's, it's always really nice to meet people that it's resonating with. Well, I always say in my work um, as a writer and as a journalist, you know, the, the hardest conversations on the one on the ones most worth having, especially when you are kind of stripped bare. So I, I, I can relate to that vulnerability but um, you know what, our, our listeners, some of them, won't know what we're talking about. So let's elevate a picture to me. What is Really Good Actually all about? Really Good Actually is about a 28-year-old woman who is finding herself unexpectedly in the process of separating from her husband of about 608 days. Um, and it takes place during the first year of her life as a newly single woman as she tries to navigate, you know, what life means to her uh, outside of this partnership that has really dominated her adult life up to this point. Um, it's about how crazy you can go during a breakup and how um, you might feel like you've got everything figured out and then one little thing changes or big thing I guess mm. and suddenly you realize you you don't know anything well in terms of the relatability you know what I meant about this being heart-wrenchingly relatable first and foremost is the fact that Maggie and John don't split up for any one big reason 
Um, you know, and that's kind of the way, in my experience, a lot of divorces happen. You said forever, but 608 days later, it's it's not working anymore. And you can't explain it. And that's like Maggie mentions in the beginning, you know, there's a whole section, a few pages actually. My marriage ended because I was cruel or because I ate in bed or because he liked electronic music and difficult films about men and nature or because I did not. <laughs> and on and on and <laughs> on it goes. It could be any number of these things. But the sad thing is, and how, how do you explain that to people? It's not, it wasn't one big thing right mm-hmm. I didn't really want I think so many books about uh, breakups end up being relationship stories these questioning whether or not the relationship would have worked or if they're going to get back together or if both parties will find love again and I really wanted this book to be about being alone rather than being with someone or even the feeling of not being with someone or breaking up with someone mm. it's, it's, a, it's really about Maggie's relationship to herself, which she hasn't realized she's been neglecting um, during her marriage. So on page 145, which kind of ties into that, there's a little bit of like a full circle moment in the middle of everything for me. Um, Maggie notes, uh, for or is it one of her friends? I'm not 100% sure, but you write, for straight women in their 20s, getting cheated on is basically jury duty, which is hilarious it's one of the it's one of those funny (laughs) lol like uh, breakthroughs that I that I brought out but yes what you're saying is 100% right like there's a lot of like bullshit that she goes through over the course of the book that she tries literally everything and everything in the book of self-care she (laughs) she throws at this problem that we come to learn doesn't doesn't really work and for me, her her friends are her friendship circle are the ones that pinpoint this out to me. So you have, is it Amira or Amira? Amira, Amira, mm-hmm. the two Laurens, emotional Lauren and and just Lauren Clive, and I feel <laughs> like they they play each their own role in Maggie's healing journey. As if you have a close group of friends from university or from college. This is what the, you know, you have this, this these friends that each serve a purpose, but they definitely do not take any of Maggie's shit throughout the book. Yeah, I think it was important to me that, that her friend group, I, I feel like I had read a lot of novels about uh, sort of messy women going through difficult times and they all seemed kind of uniquely friendless. Whereas for me, going through my own divorce, I never felt luckier to have the friends that I have than during that time. And I wanted to kind of write almost a love letter to those support networks that help difficult, help people through difficult, difficult people through Mm. difficult times. Um, But I also, it was really important to me that they not be those kind of shock friendship characters from a romantic comedy who, you know, their only interest in life is the love, the love life of their protagonist friend. So I wanted it to be clear that this friend group was being pulled away from their own lives, their own problems, their own complications, and making space within that for their friend who was going through a difficult time. Um, uh, Because I think that's a, a big act of care. It is so relatable and so accurate um, a description of a group of adult friends. Um, Lauren at one point, uh, sort of towards the middle of the book, says, no adult starts a hobby from a good place. I think that Maggie's suggesting they do a Krav Maga 
uh, class and <laughs> yeah, no adult starts a hobby from a good place. And I'm just like, you know what? I can imagine a friend saying that to me. Like, no, Sam, just <laughs> just stop with that. So l- let's lean into this, the biographical element. So how, how much exactly of you is in there? Maggie looks a lot like you. You also went through a, a, a divorce at a young age. Were you as full of shits as what Maggie was? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think... Maggie looking like me was important to me because I didn't think I would be able to write a real portrait of a woman in crisis without getting into a crisis of body image. Mm. Um, and I thought, it, you know, I have the most experience and opinions about what it's like to live in this body and look like this. So I, I thought us sharing a physical profile was kind of efficient. Um, but then I often say that the the novel is emotionally true, but the events in it are fictional. So I definitely did not behave (laughs) during my own breakup the way that Maggie behaves. But I did want to explore the feelings and impulses I had had, not all of which were particularly um, flattering. And Maggie, I think that the key difference is that Maggie has feelings and maybe impulses that we all can relate to, but the maybe unrelatable thing is that she acts on a lot of them. Um, And I think it's about kind of, for me, it was about looking at difficult thoughts or feelings I had had and what it would be like if I hadn't had any of the coping skills that I had when I went into my own divorce. For example, Mm. um, Maggie's very skeptical of therapy and I had an ongoing relationship with a therapist that preexisted my marital problems. So I was able to kind of process some of that with her help. And I, you know, in a lot of ways, Maggie is someone who I just set farther back on her kind of journey towards maturity and, and personal growth, then, um, you know, it's, she's a worst case scenario so the <laughs> version tro- of me, basically. The what if trope <laughs> of like, um, of writing prompts, you know, okay, what if I just leaned into all of that and I didn't have, yeah, I didn't have these good things to lean on a good group of friends, a therapist. Um, so the epigraph, is an interesting one to me. It's, mm. it's it's by Louise Gluck from the Telemachus Detachment. I'm assuming one of her poems. Um, mm-hmm. It's a book called Meadowlands, um, which is a retelling of the Odyssey, and it's it's lovely. So it reads, when I was a child looking at my parents' lives, you know what I thought? I thought heartbreaking. Now I think heartbreaking, but also insane, also very funny. So in relation to the heart line of this novel, why this, why this quote? I love this poem. I think it sums up exactly what I was hoping to do with the novel, which is um, to play with the fact that all of these things can exist, all these realities can exist at the same time and experience can be heartbreaking and devastating and it can also be totally bonkers and eventually it can also looking back be funny Mm. um and I think everything that I was reading about heartbreak at the time was just so densely sad and serious and focused so much on the the devastating part of heartbreak when I think there's like a fundamental irony to heartbreak that means it's funny kind of from the beginning even when I was in the worst parts of it there was still something it's almost like getting food poisoning or something where (laughs) you're like you're sure that this is your life now forever you live on the bathroom floor even though you know 
you know, uh, intellectually that this is going to pass in some cases much faster even than you might think. Um, and you'll survive it and you'll carry on and you'll live your regular life. But it's so disruptive in the moment that you really lose sight of that reality. Mm. And I think that's kind of uh, sort of silly in a funny way. Gosh, one of those moments for me, I, I, as you're speaking, I just looked it up, is how Maggie describes the passage of time, especially in those beginning months where she like leans into the romances um, or like cheese ball romances and, and and like the typical self-care, you know, of, you know Instagram self-care that tells you to like find yourself and, and different ways of doing so. And she just, it sounds like she, Maggie thinks she's really got it sorted out, <laughs> figured out. And so... One of the passages, summer carried on. Um, I worked from home and allowed myself to rest and tried almost aggressively to let the soft animal of my body love what it loved, which mostly at that point was potatoes. <laughs> Just, I can't even tell you the amount of times I have laughed out loud at that because I think breakup <laughs> or not, divorce or not, there is a woman, every woman I know can relate to that love of potatoes. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> Yeah, they're very important. I think people keep asking me, like, what's your best advice to support a friend going through a breakup? And I do think the answer is potatoes first. 100%. 100%. <laughs> would, you, would you describe this as a coming-of-age novel, considering Maggie's age? Do, do, does a coming-of-age novel have an age limit? I don't know. Yeah, I think it, it definitely is a, a coming of adulthood story, um, particularly about the whole novel is about the difference between how you say you're doing and how you're doing or how you think you're doing and how you're really doing. And I think that applies whether you're talking about processing a breakup or just, you know, trying to get by and develop an adult life that you feel proud of. Mm. I think especially in your early, early mid-20s, you can really feel like, I've done it, I'm a grown-up now. And then your late 20s, there's this really, I mean, if you want to get astrological about it, it's a Saturn return. But I think, <laughs> I think it might just be like a living and accumulating more experience on the planet. And you realize... I think the true like turn of your adulthood is that you realize, oh God, no, I'm not a grown up at all yet. And you have a kind of secondary puberty thing in your late twenties. Um, and Maggie's definitely deep in the throes of that. I don't know. And I also think there's a large part of marriage and being married. You know, people call it the, the seven year itch and this is outside of, you know, the urge to sort of sleep with other people or, um, you know, have an affair or you think you're chained to this person the rest of your life. Like, I've noticed, so I'm, to reveal my age, I'm in, in my mid-30s and have noticed now it's almost like a, our friendship groups, we're looking around and marriages are falling apart. And it does, when you talk about coming of adulthood, it does feel like this innate fear of, YOLO guys this is this is it now and we thought we'd made these adult decisions in getting married and I think Maggie describes it as it sounded so great to get you know three thousand dollars as a gift but you know is there a what now element that you were exploring as well but I feel like that's yeah a large part of also the I don't know I'm, I'm placing judgment here on a marriage's you know, crumbling around me, but I'm trying to also figure figure that out, and and that's maybe not even a twenties thing, just like a marriage thing. What what now? Are we happy with this decision that we made? Well, I think marriage is one one of the sort of, and Maggie gets into this in the book a little bit too. Mm -hmm. Marriage still 
is is I think uh, enormously rewarded in in women's lives. You know, um, I the year I I got married was also the year I published my first book. It was an essay collection, and I would run into people that I hadn't seen in a while, and they would say congratulations, and I would think they would be talking about the book, and they would actually mean my marriage. Um, <laughs> Which, you know, yeah. I've been with my partner for like eight years when we got married. So it didn't feel like this enormous achievement. We just felt like we had um, confirmed something we had known for a long time, whereas the book had been this enormous personal effort and a big, a big exciting milestone for me in my career. But people were much, much more excited for me having locked down a man. Um, and I think, you know, we like to think we're a little farther along socially than that, but the appeal of doing something that's that um, celebrated socially, culturally, you know, your community gets together and yeah, they sometimes give you money, but they, uh, your older generation of family watch you go through this ritual that they recognize and they sort of treat you as a bit more of an adult. You know, the feeling of telling a landlord, my husband and I are looking for a place. Um, mm. It just legitimizes your life culturally and socially in a way that not many other choices can at that age. Um, so losing that feels pretty bad, but I also think having it can make you uh, abandon some of the other maybe less exciting or less culturally rewarded steps towards personal growth and adulthood because you feel like I've already done it. I'm an adult. I'm married. We did it. Mm. Um, and actually that has almost nothing to say about your maturity level. <laughs> so this is the thing about comedy is it's packaged in such um, a palatable way. It is hilarious. It's, it tastes good. Your novel looks like it tastes good. You know, it's easy going, it's easy <laughs> to read, not too, not schmaltzy. Like it's, I sailed through it. It wasn't like, I'd, I'm, I'm currently reading a little life. So by, by comparison, I'm oh. just like, <laughs> It's much nicer yeah. to have ingested your novel in January. That this is, you know, a little life by comparison is just <laughs> really sour tasting. But that's the genius of comedy. And I think what you get so right is there's a lot of depth actually once you pick at the surface. So, given your your background, your writing style, um, obviously comedic, like I say, palatable, short, sharp, unexpectedly to the <laughs> point, um, and the main prose, and I, I really love this in, in a book, when the main prose is interspersed with, um, with other things, other formats. So you you slot in email correspondence and lists. Um, one of my favorite ones, well-meaning conversations with loved ones truncated at the exact moment they started to bring up kintsugi, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, kintsugi is the Japanese art where a, when a pot falls apart and it's kind of mended but with gold. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then uh, Maggie's Google searches throughout the year. So I just really love these bullet points. It is so cleverly done. Um, so for our readers, because obviously, you know, you wrote it, uh, Monica. But um, <laughs> these, bullet, these bullet points, it's just like two pages, really like sparse. But bullet points of Maggie's that say so much about Maggie's state of mind and her trails of thoughts in, in just a few short phrases. So it'll start with like... <laughs> Google searches, 10 June, dark circles, pale skin, Korean skincare routine, fewer steps. You know, it goes on, Botox for double chin, breast exercises, rules of Tinder. Typical and relatable Google searches down to, okay, going on to the last one, dial a bottle Toronto. And then 
how delete TikTok, but delete is misspelled. It's just, and you see, you're like, okay, I can see what happened. This is tragic. Shame. This, <laughs> this poor woman. So good. So good. Um, and it, it, you know, it carries on through these unanswered texts. So it's very one-sided, right? We, uh, mm-hmm. we don't get any responses from John. And we mm-hmm. see only Maggie's point of view. And I mean, we might have guessed it, but we ultimately found out, find out without any spoilers that Maggie is a totally, hopelessly unreliable narrator. And um, we realize, and it comes to light, that, that we're really just getting her side of the story. You know, unless you've really, it's, it's because it's so super ingestible, you're not thinking consciously about it at the time. Okay, but what does John say? What did, you know, you're really just getting her point of view. And then there is a moment, a crux, where she, you realize she's so much more of a mess than we be, can even begin to realize. So was that an intentional kind of arc that, that you plotted through? Yeah, I think I, w- I wanted to really set up someone who, who, because she knows she's doing her best, uh, we maybe feel like her best is enough. But that, to also establish that there are situations where doing your best alone is not actually enough and you do really need to call in reinforcements, whether that's allowing your friends to take care of you or seeking the help of a professional in some way. Mm-hmm. And Maggie's someone who, because she doesn't want to process those difficult internal emotions, is just trying to run from them with, you know, as you say, self-care, with exercise, with meeting new people, um, when actually what she needs to do is is the kind of boring personal work of sitting down understanding her feelings, maybe talking about her feelings with someone who cares about her or a professional who can help her process them. Mm. And that's a lot less exciting than going on 600 Tinder dates. Um, (laughs) But it's ultimately the only thing that will actually help you get over what you're feeling. And you start to, I mean, this has become a cliche, I suppose. Maybe I've just overthought it. But it's that point of realizing that self-care and self-enlightenment and self-awareness has a lot, is a lot more than lighting a candle or mastering the art of meditation <laughs> and you know doing yoga with Adrian 30 days in a row or whatever it might be it's more than that real self-care especially when you're going through a tough time or a trauma is ugly and it's it doesn't feel good yeah and i think it's really natural to want to avoid pain and to want to avoid discomfort but by trying to avoid it at that extreme level, you're just prolonging the amount of time you spend in that discomfort. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something Maggie doesn't realize until every last op- – she suddenly has nowhere to run in mm-hmm. terms of how she's – at. she can't lie to this therapist about how she's doing because the evidence is presented very clearly and objectively. Um, so she's finally kind of been caught out after being on the run for quite some time. Gosh, and then when that happens, I just read it now. I, I, <laughs> she she speaks to a therapist, and again, won't won't go too much into it. But she's just like, and she's a smart woman, Maggie. She's smart. She's not a dum dum, you know. She she's an intellectual. Uh-uh. She's an academic. She knows these things, you know, and she knows she knows better. And she she gets to this crux in this moment with her therapist, and is it with her therapist? Yeah where she says, I told her that I couldn't believe that I'd been brought to my knees by something as quotidian as heartbreak. I told her I was sick of feeling like the biggest woman Emilio Zara could imagine. 
and Helen asks Emilio. Oh, I said, that's what my friends and I call the head designer at Zara. <laughs> Stop there. But yeah, you're like, yeah, she doesn't want it. She doesn't want to be brought down by something as quotidian as heartbreak. It's, this is ridiculous. How could that send me, you know, to the depths of despair? And yet it did. And she explores that and she admits that. And that's a moment. That was a, a moment for me. In addition to the, the LOL. <laughs> Thanks for that. Which, I think it, it can be hard to find like the the place where your your personal experience is, is uh, not maybe living up to your own politics. I think mm. Maggie thinks of herself as someone who the loss of something like a boyfriend or a husband could never devastate her the way that it actually is devastating her um, because she's a smart feminist, mm. because she's a modern woman. But losing someone that you love, no matter what your politics is, is difficult, is painful, can be really um, upsetting. And I think she can't, almost can't admit it to herself because she thinks of someone who's above that, herself as someone mm. who's above that kind of thing. Again, so, re- so relatable. Really, really relatable. So um, there are three characters we haven't spoken about outside of friendship group, but I think they... They brought in, so Simon is a new love interest, Amy a new friend or failed Tinder date, (laughs) Um, Merit, (laughs) who is essentially Maggie's boss, but so much more. Um, They become interesting friendship developments that propel the storyline for me. And I don't know whether you intended for this, so I'm I'm leaning into that um, and asking your opinion here on on your own writing. But ultimately, I believe they are the ones, those three, they're the ones that draw Maggie out of her own asshole. You know, we like her, but we can see that that she's, dude, there's a whole world around you that you're not seeing. Yes, I think that's really true. And I think sometimes that outside perspective of people who don't know you as well as your close friends is really important. And whether that person's a therapist or um, a new friend or someone else who's going through the same thing as you, you know, both Maris and Amy, who are um, two of the other friends in Maggie's life, are divorced themselves. And um, Simon is going through a major breakup as well. And that kind of community is so important. Finding people who have similar experiences to you that maybe handle them in a different way or, um, you, you know, being able to talk about the feelings that are the same, even if the experiences weren't exactly the same. Mm. Um, I think Maggie is really someone who has privileged romantic love for such a long time that she's out of practice when she finds love and care in platonic forms. So we spoke a little bit earlier about how you break up the narrative but still propel the storyline with um, – you know, the emails and the, the Google searches. And one of them um, is Maggie's fantasies. So there's one in particular. And I've read a lot of your quotes and will continue to wax lyrical about them. Um, but <laughs> I'd love for you to read. There is one particular fantasy on page 75 that I've asked you to map out. Would you read it for our audience? Sure. Okay. A fantasy. I am at a karaoke bar and I look amazing. Better than normal, but in a casual way. Like I just got a haircut that affected my whole body. The bar is packed and although I am the only person singing, everyone is on board with that and thinks it's fun. In fact, I am taking requests. 
the outfit I'm wearing is casual, but looks special. Like it's not sparkling, but I am. Like wearing sequins is a vibe and I'm dressed head to toe in that vibe exactly. I am carrying myself with the easy confidence of a woman who both has a tax-free savings account and understands how one works. I sound great. All the songs I'm singing are about heartbreak and the raw emotion of my recent experience informs each number. People are so moved. Some of them are weeping. Much of the audience is made up of enthralled strangers, all of whom find me mysterious and alluring. The friends I came with are dumbstruck. No one can believe that I've been hiding this voice, that I've been so humble about it. We thought all her grief would be for nothing, one whispers to another, but look what she's done with it. She's like Nora Ephron, if Nora Ephron had the voice of Adele. On stage, the pianist, there's a band, gives me a little wink. A stranger leans over to my friends. Sorry, do you know her? They beam. We do. Everyone is smoking indoors and it feels glamorous instead of like one of those old man bars where the lights are always on full blast and someone's chalking a pool cue for much too long while impossibly aged men read out-of-date newspapers and swear in Portuguese. What's cool about Maggie, a friend tells the stranger, is that she's divorced, but in like a really fun way. Divorced, the stranger says, so young? That is fun, good for her. Suddenly, from somewhere, nuggets. <laughs> I had to hold in a couple of <laughs> a couple of giggles there, but so <laughs> good, so good, Monica. I love this book, um, and I've been hanging on to it because I got my notes. I've been hoping to speak with you, but I am going to hand it to all of my friends and gift it to many more because it's it really is for where we are at now in our age group and friendship groups and in our lives. It is so good. So thank you for opening up your vulnerabilities to the public. I think it's, it's paid off <laughs> and I, yeah, I think it's a winner. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So one last question. And that is with all of your projects that we, we, and I, I mentioned we, I mean, me and my friends are obsessed with the Shits Creek Working Moms, your screenwriting work. And now I will be heading over to your essays and deep doing a, a Monica Heisey deep dive. So what's next for <laughs> Monica Heisey? Are there, are there any more sardonic anti-romances in your future? Uh, I hope so. Well, we're developing really good, actually, for television. So that's something that I'm working on right now. Oh, hang on, um, hang on, hang on. <laughs> that's amazing. Yes. I love yeah. it. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so that's in the very, very early stages. Um, and I've got another novel that I'll be working on over the next year and a bit. Um, and then I have my first uh, romantic comedy television show coming out. Uh, in the summertime on Sky, uh, it's called Smothered right now. It's a working title, but hopefully that's the title. <laughs> um, and that will be out in the summer. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'll keep my eyes peeled. And I'm a big fan. Monica Heisey, we're going to put all our listeners in touch if they aren't already. And thanks so much for joining me on TGE's Current Read. Thank you so much for having me. 